nations where unknown forces strike the edge of ecology. Uh, so a bit of history of how we've 
approached mental illness, how we've treated mental illness, um, and the limitations, particularly of the biochemical model, which is the current approach that we have in, as a society, which basically means we see uh, mental illness as a brain chemical imbalance and to be treated with drugs. And I'll be looking at a lot of the controversies around that. Um, then I'll be looking at psychedelic medicines, which some of you may have heard of. Um, psychedelic medicines are based on shamanic teach, what we call teaching plants. So it's and they're gaining a lot of credence in the mental health world. Uh, a lot of clinical trials, which we'll be looking at a couple of clinical trials, and showing real promise in the treatment of uh, very difficult to treat uh, mental illnesses. But I don't want to focus too much on the psychedelic medicines because I want to bring in the, the what's really what I say is more important, which is the power of showing ritual and ceremony um, to offer perspective and healing. Basically, the intention really behind this talk is to take away the um, pathologization of, of mental illness. We, in, in our culture, we tend to pathologize mental illness, or we, um, or and altered states of uh, consciousness, which shamanism is associated. We pathologize, we trivialize, or we, we criminalize um, through illegal knocking people up. Well, I'll go much more into that. So the intent really is to take away that uh, and look from a maybe more inclusive viewpoint. And what we see as abnormal states of mind, some conscious holding actual high esteem. And so that will be the, the essence of the talk, if you like. Um, but to begin with, we have to really define what shamanism is, because it's become a bit of a buzzword right now, uh, which is great. It means shamanism is coming much more into the mainstream. But it also means there's an opportunity of kind of a dilution or misunderstanding uh, where people chuck shamanism in front of an enemy to sell a product. Um, shamanic uh, cereal is actually in, in America, which is one example of this kind of commercialization. So obviously uh, we need to define what it is. So it's a magical religious practice. And basically the shaman, the origin of the word comes from the word shaman, which is a Siberian Tungus tribe in Siberia word. Um, but what anthropologists noticed when they were studying sort of uh, 200 to 300 years ago and then going into the last century, they noticed that there was a lot of different indigenous tribes all across the world who had, would have similar uh, people that would occupy a similar <coughs> role to the Siberian shaman. Summer. So they basically they labeled then labeled all indigenous practitioners that uh, had this role in their uh, tribe. They called them shamans, and they the study of shamanism. Um, in essence, although there's a lot of controversy and still people arguing about the definitions, obviously it does change from culture to culture, and there's thousands and thousands of different indigenous cultures. But there does seem to be this thread running through a lot of these cultures where there, there would be this person who occupies this role in the tribe. Um, and basically this person is adept at going into controlled trance to access and commune with the spirit world on behalf of others. Now there's two <coughs> things that are really important here. The first being controlled. Basically that means they can go into trance at will. Now trance is sometimes called ecstatic states of consciousness, altered states of consciousness, even shamanic states of consciousness. 
It means going into a much deeper level of consciousness. But the, the important thing is that at will, it doesn't happen spontaneously, although it may in the initiation, as we see. So that differentiates it from some other past, like some spirit mediums who will go into trance spontaneously and then start speaking about what's coming from the other world. The shaman is always doing it at will, on demand, pretty much. Um, and the other important thing is always on behalf of others. So it's always on behalf of the community. So it's a job, if you like, it's a role that this person has to take. Indigenous people, mainly when they look at Westerners who want to be shamans, they think we're mad. Because it involves a lot of responsibility, because your, your responsibility is always to the community. So that also differentiates it from some of the more mystical parts, where someone might seek communion with God, or with everything, or with spirit, as a more as part of their own self-development, or their own progression of their soul. The shaman is always going to trance for a reason, and the reason is for other people. So it's, 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 it's that job uh, aspect to it. It's like being a mechanic or something in the, in the modern world, really. Um, uh, so, and the purpose they go into this trance is for healing, often, uh, for divination, so telling the future, seeing into the past, and also seeing what's happening deeper in the present. Uh, finding lost things, including souls, so from a shamanic perspective, when someone goes through a trauma, part of their essence, part of their soul can actually split off from, uh, from uh, themselves. So modern, in modern terms, we call it disassociation. Hopefully, after the trauma subsides, the soul part comes back. You can see this if someone's gone through a deep shock, a car crash or something, you look into their eyes, they're gone. They're completely gone. Hopefully, the soul, like I say, if this trauma um, was, once the, the trauma wears off, it comes back, but often it doesn't for different reasons, especially if the trauma is ongoing. So from a shamanic perspective, that means something literal has happened, and shamans will go deep into the other world in their trance in order to capture back these soul parts and bring it back. It's a big part of shamanic healing. Um, hunting magic, so finding where the prey would be the next day. Um, as a lot of this where shamans come from their uh, hunter-gatherer tribes. So getting the meat for the subsistence is really important. So the shaman would commune with the animal. And I was, I've just come back from Mexico and, um, with a tribe and, and to finish a, a big part of the pilgrimage, we had to hunt the a deer. And this is high up in the mountains, there's not many deer around. And so I witnessed this firsthand, the, the, what they, uh, they're called the Marakamis with the tribe I work with. Um, but their, their shamans would go deep into a trance, they commune with the spirit of the animal, and they negotiate the animal will, will sacrifice itself for the good of human, for the human tribe, and they, the animal has to tell them where they will be. So it's basically tested out the next day. If they arrive somewhere they're done, the, 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 the game doesn't arrive, and the shaman does that too many times, then they get sacked, basically, because they're not... It's not being efficient, and uh, it's not telling where the animals will be. Paying the community spiritual debt. debt. This is a big part of shamanism. Uh, Martin Prechtel, who's written quite a lot about the Mayans for uh, shaman culture, says, for, for their, in their perspective, humans aren't born into original sin, they're born into original debt. I.e., we're given so much in order to just have our lives. So much spirit is breathed into us, so much of our physical body has this animation. And uh, this is a great debt that we have. And so most indigenous cultures spend most of the time paying back that 
debt through offerings, through ceremonies. Most of the ceremonies and rituals are concerned with ensuring that this, in order to keep the humans in balance with nature, because the spirits are seen as the, the nature is seen as the visible face of the spirits, if you like. So the spiritual reality that surrounds us and provides everything we need as human beings to not just to exist but to flourish and to and to create culture and to, to have incredible lives is given to us by nature. So it's the shaman's job to keep the balance between the spirits of the, uh, in the invisible fabric of nature and the human community. And when that goes out of balance, then the shamans will bring a ceremony or a ritual in order to bring back the balance. So if you look at uh, modern day culture, you can pretty much see we've fallen out of that balance between that reciprocal relationship with nature in a huge way. And this is one reason we, we, we're taking too much, we're consuming too much, we're digging into the earth, we're taking, ripping out the heart and the guts of the earth. We're taking them without the ceremonies, without the rituals. And so this is one reason I believe that shamans are being called very much, even in cultures like our own in, in Britain or Western cultures, where the where we haven't maybe got that tradition for the last few hundred years at least. So shamans have been called again, I believe, to, to get this balance back. Corresponding um, uh, and healing the dead, the ancestors, and controlling the weather. Uh, so I, again, it's about the survival of the tribe. So um, again, the Mexicans where I live, uh, the Rarica tribal in Mexico, they're called Huichol. It's very dry where they live. There's hardly any rain. So they have to do big rituals in order to cool the rain to come in every year to, so the corn will grow. So they can I mean, they live a subsistence life. And if the corn doesn't grow, they start. So they, it's really important. Um, there's a great story, a friend of mine who was on pilgrimage with him once, he tells the, and it's controversial Westerners going over there sometimes. And so the, this big group of Marikani, shamans were having an argument because they didn't want any Westerners there. And, and so they're having this huge argument. And as they argue, and this is in the desert landscape, this mini tornado is coming straight towards the Marikamas. You do get these, these incredible cyclones, mini tornadoes there. And, uh, and, and someone run over to them and warned them. And the Marikamas turned around with their barrieres, which are basically their wands and their feathers, and did some magic. And the, he said, they watched us, it just went around them completely. <laughs> And then came back around. So they, they, they have this deep relationship with nature and, and deep understanding of it and ability. But as you'll see, a lot of this is about survival. So shamanism isn't a spiritual path that people who go on for their self-development. It's literally to keep people alive. And again, that's why I feel there is this big call right now, because we are teetering probably a bit on the edge as human beings in terms of how we can survive as, as, as a culture and as a society. Um, so, the Shaman's vocation, and this is just a few quotes, because there's a, there's a big history of um, shamanism and mental illness. So when anthropologists and uh, explorers were going over from Europe and the Western end and meeting these tribes in Siberia, Mongolia, they were, they were seeing that well, at first they thought they were possessed by the devil. They said they, these were pagans cut off from the sanctity of God. They were possessed by the devil. And as um, Western society became gradually more secular, they simply became mentally ill. 
Now, there's a close relationship between being possessed by the devil and mental illness, as we will see. There's kind of tradition in, 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 in Western Europe, particularly. Um, so, but there was always what notes they noticed, these anthropologists, as they, was going, as they were going there, was this, that the shaman had this ability to kind of um, stand on this edge between pure madness and practicing what they're, they're after, their vocation. Uh, so they say to be called, become a shaman is generally equivalent of being afflicted with hysteria, which was the name for a lot of anxiety or nervous disorders in those days. And then the accepting of them called means recovery. So there's this idea that shamans have always been called by what we call this shamanic sickness. Um, uh, and so they're nervous and highly excitable temperaments are most susceptible to the shamanic, shamanistic call. Um, and I, this is one of my favorite uh, quotes. Studying shamanism, we encounter, first of all, entire categories of men and women who either suffer from nervous agitation or are obviously not in their right mind or completely insane. It's a form of religion that was created through the selection of mentally unstable people, which I think is hilarious, really. And it shows that kind of Eurocentric view of them going over there and, and who are these mad people? What? But the, and they've created a religion out of it. Some would say it's still the same now. Um, so what is this, the, the traditional shamanic sickness, which is the heart of this comparison between mental illness and, and shamanism? And so basically the traditional uh, shamanic sickness, and it runs through many different cultures. Siberia, there's an anthropological account of full of it, from Siberia, from Africa, parts of the Americas. So it's a, a tradition tradition or a phenomenon more like that has run through many different cultures throughout the world and it seems to follow a very similar pattern and so the initiate often around adolescence somebody begins to be psychically haunted in their dreams or waking visions so they begin to start seeing things that aren't there that other people can't see or they begin to be taken over by strange moods or they begin to have dreams where they're, where they're being haunted um, and these visitation problems mood swings and exhibit, exhibit, exhibitions of erratic behavior, often accompanied by physical symptoms, such as compulsions, repetitive rocking, alongside changes in physical appearance, such as weight loss. So they, they start to not only become mentally or psychically haunted, these prospective shamans start to lose weight, become physically affected, um, and they withdraw completely from the society. So they withdraw, they sleep for, for long periods, um, and unable to engage in normal activities, and this eventually leads to completely cutting off. Usually they kind of often, quite often, the prospective shamans would would alternate between this very non not being able to move and sleeping for long periods and this and other manic or mania mania behaviour. So they would be and in those manic um, uh, periods, they might act up in the community and break many taboos. So a classic would be walking down the um, uh, <coughs> the high street or the high, whatever you call that in a, in a tribal village uh, with no clothes on or offending people in some way, saying things that are out of turn. Um, and finally, often at the point of extreme physical degradation and nearing death, they are visited by a spirit and given the power and the information needed to shamanize. But the one, one thing 
Ah, yeah. This, when they do cut off, they take themselves voluntarily off to live in nature alone. Uh, and living often like a semi-wild person. So they completely, they, dis, dis, they remove themselves from society. Um, and then they get this spirit that lands in them and gives them the information. Because there's something that they need to learn that cannot be learned in the human culture. And this is really important when it comes to shamanism because the shamans always have a foot in two worlds and a responsibility and a kind of loyalty, if you like, to two worlds, both the human world and the natural world, the wild nature. And this is why they struggle to fit into the human society, particularly when they're going through this shamanic sickness and this initiation. The human world can't hold them. Now I would say this, it's very similar for a lot of people going through mental illness today. And that's why traditionally we tend to lock them up and lock them away in asylums that we used to. Nowadays they tend to just most mental a lot of people with mental illness get locked up in prison or end up homeless on the street. There's something where the human society, it's still happening now, they're naturally pushed out of the human society. In shamanistic cultures, there's a place for them to go, and that's the wild. And there is an understanding that they need to go and they need to learn directly from nature. Because this, like I say, nature is the visible face of spirit. So these are the spirits that the, the shamans will have to communicate with and commune with when they're doing their work, doing their ceremonies, doing their healing. Um, and as I said, it was well documented in, in many cross-cultural societies. <coughs> and this is just an example of um, a famous Sege shaman, which is a, a tribe from northern China, I think. And, uh, and this is how his wife describes his initiation. How did he become a shaman? Sickness seized him when he was 23 years old, and he became a shaman at the age of 30. That was how he became become a shaman. After the sickness, after the torture, he had been ill for seven years. While he was ailing, he had dreams. He was beaten up several times. Sometimes he was taken to strange places. So this is how a wife describes her own husband's shamanic sickness or initiation. And remember, this is a culture that recognises that this is part of a natural cycle, that actually this person has been called for something, and this culture will have great respect for the, uh, to the spirits. They believe that it's the invisible forces that are in nature that actually holds manifest re reality together. And so they have great respect, but it's still seen as torture, even within that culture. Uh, so why might that be? And that's what when I was writing the book particularly, because it's one thing describing something, but it's, I, I feel we've got to look a bit deeper. Why, why would a shaman, a prospective shaman, has to have to go through this torture? And why do people still need to go through these uh, initiations when they're taken to the edge of reality? As most, a lot of people who suffer from mental illness are taken to the edge of their, edge of their minds and beyond and their emotions. And partly what I came up with was this idea of experience and animistic reality. Now, shamanism is based, is, is sometimes called the proto-religion, i.e. all cultures and all religions come out of uh, shamanistic roots. Basically, it's the first way we discovered as human beings in order to praise the sacred, to, to engage with ceremonies, to... Uh, uh, to celebrate life and to get, and to experience something greater than our individual selves. So and that is really 
what is something called animism. And this goes back to the, the, the birth of the modern human about 70,000 years ago, when, it, when for some reason, and they still don't know why or how, humans' brains changed and we started developing culture, we started developing complex language, we started developing cave art, and, and a lot of, we became what we are today as modern humans. Um, and so this, uh, and some people, and, and it's in my book, uh, believe that it was the shamanic states of consciousness that actually s stimulated that transformation in the brain and, and our ability to suddenly, like I say, be able to build complex language and through complex language build complex societies, which has led to where we are today in civilization. The further we get away from that, though, that animistic, an animistic view of reality basically says that everything is alive, everything is full of spirit. So everything has is everything is animated. Everything has a consciousness, or a, and within that, everything has an agency and a volition, really. So that is something that's obvious, maybe obvious with us humans. But it's something like we might say is inanimate, like a tree. For an animistic culture, the tree has the same level of consciousness as human. It just expresses it in different ways. Uh, even something like this chair would have some level of consciousness, although it might be a faint memory of some of the parts that have actually made it. Um, and also things like invisible ideas have an animistic, they have a spirit to them. And if you want to know about the power that ideas have, the spiritual power that ideas have, study any of the great religions or politics, communism, capitalism, people will go to war, will kill and slaughter, will sacrifice their own lives in order, in order to satisfy this ideal or the, this idea. This is the power that ideas have. So from a shamanic perspective, ideas are some of the most powerful uh, spirits there are alive. And that's why they look at Westerners and they say, your magic is too strong. You've got too many ideas. You're, you're too wedded to those ideas, hence why you go to war and create revolutions, counter-revolutions, etc., etc. So that is a power in an animistic reality. Also, some things like sickness, which we, we may say is having a physical cause or, or this cause. Sickness has a spirit to it from an animistic perspective. And that's the job of the shaman, really, is to get to know that sickness. So then when someone is getting sick in their society, they're able to negotiate. They know that sickness. They know what it smells like, they know what it tastes like, they know how it comes into people, and then through their negotiation, sometimes expelling of that sickness, they can treat people. So in order to see this great whirling reality as it is, we have to take away a lot of the natural brain's repressive because if we experience that anarchistic reality right now, if we kind of slip something into your drink or something, and suddenly you're kind of in a kind of experiencing animism as it truly is, it can be completely overwhelming for an individual self, for particularly the uh, the ego, what we might call the ego, or the individual self. It's too much. So the brain gets used to repressing reality. It gets used to it from a very young age to repress reality because it's too much in order to function in this world. We have to. We can't experience reality, too much reality at too much at a time. 
so language, in fact, is one of those repressive mechanisms. Because by naming something, we categorize it. And then we are able to put reality in these small manageable chunks. So we can say this is a room, this is a curtain, and we can also collectively agree that they're curtains, this is a room. And so by, by sharing language, it's another repressive mechanism. So when you take away those repressive mechanisms, now the Wirra tribe I work with, they do this in a ritual way. For example, the pilgrimage I've just been at. Um, so for this pilgrimage involves a thousand kilometers, and I used to walk it up until recent modern times, a uh, thousand kilometers over two months, and it's over mountains and really crazy, rocky, and then into the desert, and then they would carry, in order, they would go there to pick their sacrament, which is the, what they call the hickory cactus, but it, uh, in Spanish it's called peyote, you may have heard of it, it's a psychoactive uh, cactus. So they go there, for a, walk in there for a month, giving lots of offerings along the way to pick their uh, sacrament, and then they take it all the way back to their communities, and they use it for all their ceremonies. Their whole culture is based on this on this one cactus. They don't really they have a few other herbs, but they don't really use any other medicines. Just this hickory cactus, which is not only seen as healing the body, although it's good for the body, it's more importantly seen as healing the spirit. And they live long lives, well into the hundreds. They're still going on uh, climbing sacred mountains, fasting, and, um, and so when it, during this pilgrimage, in order to break the hold of a conscious uh, language, you, they rename everything. So when you're in this two months of pilgrimage, obviously they have names in their language for sky, for desert, for nowadays, for cars, for uh, tobacco, and they rename everything, including the people on the pilgrimage. You get a special pilgrimage name. And then also you get another name, which is the opposite of it. So as a man, I get a female name, and the women get a male name. Now what they're doing, although it's very playful, is they're realizing that language has an ability to repress reality and to also define it too much. So every single year, they remake reality by renaming everything. They, they realize that as human beings, we can get too stuck on unfixated ideas. So they rename uh, everything, and also they eat a lot of hickory, so which really helps. With <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, all through the pilgrimage, you just eat it from six in the morning to, well, you don't sleep, you're not allowed to sleep either. Um, literally, if you, get, if you fall asleep, you're not allowed to sleep for days on end. If you fall asleep, they come the, and the kids are the little policemen, and they've got these uh, fake guns now, and they point the gun at your head, and they shoot you. And then they give you a fine when you wake up. So, so they're pushing and pushing and pushing people out of their comfort zones, out of their normal think modes of thinking. This is done in a ritualized way in a culture that's done this for thousands of years. But what happens when that happens spontaneously? What happens when we start to experience animism or animistic reality as it truly is? That, and I. From my own experience at the age of 14 and having a convulsive fit that came out of nowhere, shaking on the bed, and then, and then the doctor came, but then everything got quiet and it got really weird because I had this sense of what I can only describe now as oneness, ecstasy, unity with everything, love, pure love. 
I was terrified, not at the time, because it was the most beautiful experience of my life, but afterwards, I had no way of putting that into any context. I was going to be a professional footballer, which is a true story. And it didn't kind of fit with the career path, <laughs> these mystical experiences. Um, so, what happens if we start experiencing that spontaneous way, or through trauma, which naturally opens people up too much to life? This is what I believe is at the root of a lot of what we would call mental illnesses. How people respond is often due to their temperament. So people might really start to shut that down, try and shut that experiencing too much life or reality as it is, and sink into the mire of depression. And there's a lot of studies now that think that um, depression is actually caused by an overly uh, stimulated response, um, fear response in the, in the uh, nervous system. So depression is a, is a coping mechanism, if you like, to shut that down. We're experiencing too much at once. People might uh, start reacting in different ways and start trying to control reality, start having little rituals like in an obsessive compulsive or rituals in eating disorders. Um, they might get lost. They might completely give in to that reality and get lost and have a psychotic break reality and start seeing connections and meanings everywhere. I think we saw this a lot collectively in the recent lockdown when people started really spinning out and, and seeing connections and meaning and everything everywhere. And too much of that can drive you crazy. Or they might get lost in that fear response and have an anxiety disorder. But I would suggest that most of what we call mental illness is just creative ways of coping with the same thing, which is experiencing too, too much life, too much at once. And shamans are traditionally seen as overly sensitive to life. Overly sensitive. They feel too much. They experience too much. That's what gives them the natural disposition to do what they do. And I would suggest that a lot of people go, not everyone of course, but a lot of people going through such mental breakdowns and crises is that they are oversensitive to life over feeling too much, seeing too much, always the stranger, always asking too many questions, always trying to work everything out, uh, or just very quiet and uh, absorbing and uh, observing everything. Um, and like I said, there might be cause, there might be a, a catalyzing event, like a deep trauma in someone's life, or it might be a natural disposition that they're, they're born this way, or it often, I would say, is a mixture of both. Because trauma, the one good thing I would say, if there is a good thing about trauma, is it opens us up to life. It, it blows us open, it breaks us apart many times. How many people get on a spiritual path through some kind of breakdown in their life? Breakdown of relationship, breakdown of mental health, breakdown of uh, losing their career, whatever. For some reason, I mean, it would be better if it was. Uh, uh, if you didn't have to go through that drama, wouldn't it? It would be better if, why, why don't people just go on the spiritual path? No, you have to go through this kind of, you have to be cracked over. And that's what a lot I would suggest is the shamanic sickness. Uh, so this is the Wirelka, this is what I was talking about, the pilgrimage. Um, now the really interesting thing, it gets really important to me, I hope it's to you, but, um, but it gets really interesting is how then they train these prospective shamans, because that's not the end of it. The shamanic sickness is end of it. It's then the person will return to the community and usually undergo a rigorous and again multi-year training. Uh, now it's interesting that 
a lot of the training actually mimics the shamanic sickness. But again, it's done in a ritualised and contained way. So engaging in relentless and obsessive behaviours, i.e. continuous dancing and drumming. So a lot of the ceremonies might go on for three days, and again, you're drumming, you're dancing, often fasting, often no water, so dry fasting. So not having any water, drumming, until exhaustion hits, and you basically pass out and hopefully have a vision. So again, it's pushing people to the edges. Uh, working convulsions and shaking, disturbing normal waking sleeping cycles, which again is mental illness. One of the kind of first um, signs, if you like, of mental illness is this disturbed waking uh, sleeping cycle. And, and actually, that can provoke many different from depression to, to, um, to more florid psychosis, um, what we call psychosis. Consuming large quantities of mind altering substances. The teacher funds I talked about. Uh, being pushed to the limits of physical and psychological endurance, sweating, fasting, spending prolonged periods of time in lonely nature, being buried alive. I just, I probably shouldn't have admitted, but I just buried alone in my students last weekend. As you can imagine, it's quite a full on ceremony. It's good to, to actually go into your grave and spend a night. I mean, it's a beautiful ceremony because you're in the in the, the roots of nature, where the mycelium complex and the roots are speaking to one another, you become a part of nature. There's something very much with shamanism when you lose your humanness and you become part of nature. And I would suggest often that this again, what they're doing here is they're taking these people that are more susceptible to being overly sensitive to life, who don't quite fit in the norms even of an animistic or shamanistic culture. And they're taking them apart and saying, okay, you're going to be the ones that see the visions. You're going to be the ones that can see what other people can't see. And instead of labeling you mad or crazy and locking you up, we're actually going to give you a culturally endorsed position. And it's an important position as well. Um, okay, so that's a brief, kind of, very brief uh, go through of this uh, shamanistic view of mental illness, if you like. Uh, I go into a lot more detail in the book, but this uh, and a lot more um, uh, evidence of this shamanic sickness. But this is the basic, what I see is the shamanistic view. So let's look at, let's contrast that now with civil, civilization in inverted commas again, <laughs> treatment of the mentally ill. Um, and this is a famous uh, picture from Bedlam, which is some uh, Bethlehem's hospital, you will become a kind of phenomenon if that's a word for craziness or chaos, uh, which is in uh, Victorian times. Um, so to, in order to understand the Western approach to mental illness, we really have to go back to Western, kind of the birth of Western civilization, if you like, and that's the Greeks, really, a lot of it, our influences, particularly around medical, medicalization and doctor, it comes from the Greeks. So the Greeks had this, still this idea that the mental illness or craziness could be divinely inspired. And this is writing from Plato. This is a type of madness that's possession by the muses. They call them muses. From shamanism, they're called by the spirits. Takes a tender virgin soul and wakes in it to a Bacchic frenzy. Bacchic, Bacchus, was one of the gods really associated with those, uh, an older matrilineal uh, traditions, which are much more shamanistic, really. Um, and plenty of song and poetry. And it's interesting, uh, in traditional cultures, the shamans 
uh, always often the singers and the poets. In fact, the Shams spend a lot of the time singing. In my culture is the same word, singer, weeper, as in someone can cry, and, um, and Shams is the same word. Uh, um, so it shows that kind of, uh, the, that energy, if you like, uh, the, or that kind of personality. Um, and if anyone comes to the gates of poetry and expects to become an adequate poet by acquiring expert knowledge of a subject without muses and madness, he will fail. Uh, and he goes on. So this, so it's divinely inspired. This idea again opening people up to a, a greater reality than the everyday person can see. But in Greek culture, he also had um, this this much more bodily centered view of mental illness. So it began this split in Greek culture. You had this more spiritual, ancient view of, of, of mental illness. And then they they discovered this, or they developed a more this kind of uh, medical model dealing with what they called the four humours, which you may have heard of, which basically was seen as the four humours were these um, energies, if you like, that make us up, but is also seen in uh, all of nature. Um, to the point where the word melancholy, which used to be the word for depression up until the last century, um, actually literally translates as black bile. So an excess of black bile was seen as causing melancholy, which was causing depression. Also hysteria, which we've already seen, basically translates as wandering womb. So they saw that, that, that the womb had become somehow disconnected. And they also kind of, I think, shows Greek culture is quite patriarchal. And, and, and since then, hysteria has been really associated with women much more than men. I mean, that's how we, the birth of psychoanalysis and really psychology and psychotherapy came out studying uh, um, what they call hysteria. But it was mainly men doing the study, and it was mainly women being sick. Um, so there became this split between a much more bodily centred view of mental illness and a more spiritual. Now in Greek culture that was pretty uh, balanced, they, they were pretty, pretty integrated, but increasingly as we go through Western culture to the point now, this split has become wider and wider and wider. And you could say nowadays this split is um, emphasised by or uh, the teens are the, the ones that see the spiritual side as more the psychology, it's like being the study of uh, the soul, uh, and then the biochemical psychiatrists who see it purely as a medical, like I say, imbalance in the brain. Um, but this has led to some quite gruesome treatments, should we say. Uh, so in the, in the Middle Ages, when we jump to the Middle Ages, it, it, there was this great kind of fervent religious kind of upheaval and change, and uh, the mentally ill then were seen as possessed by the devil, pretty much. And so the priest would be the person they took them to, and they would do exorcisms, uh, sucking out uh, the, the, the devil out of the person, or driving the devil out of the person, and, and that was seen as the cure, and then the people would be kind of advised to live a good, godly life. Um, but the thing is, in that time, then the, it became not only was the devil possessing these people involuntarily, but actually people were choosing to, to uh, uh, cavort with the devil. And, and this was driving their madness. And so uh, um, mental illness was seen as a punishment 
for cavorting or spending too much time with the devil. So hence when you had the witch trials that really got rid of uh, um, our animistic traditions or the practitioners of our animistic traditions, they also scooped up the mentally ill in equal measure. And so, so then uh, mental illness actually resulted in a um, genocide, really, of, of a, uh, on some level, which, interestingly enough, not much changed up until the 20th century. So then you have the, I think this is the 18th century, where the, in the madhouses, where they, the idea, they become less religious about it, but the idea was that the humans that were suffering mental illness had lost their rational faculties, because as Western society was becoming ever more secular, rationality from the Enlightenment, etc., was worshipped as this ideal of what it meant to be human, and the mentally ill had just lost that. So they, the other treatments were to shock the mentally ill out of their madness and get them back on the rational footing. So involved the spinning the, uh, in this, uh, this bottom left, you know, contraction that would be spun for days upon end uh, until the until um, the madness left them. They would be dumped in freezing water. They would be beaten, etc., etc. So basically, the idea is again a similar kind of. Dressed up as science, but a similar perspective of just beating the, the madness out of people or driving it out. And then we have the, as many of you have, we're uh, into the 20th century now. And, and particularly in the interwar years between the First World War and the Second World War, we saw this rise in this, uh, and then immediately after the Second World War, this, this, this fervor that mental illness could be cured by finding the biological root cause. Now, a lot of this came from um, this kind of scientific takeover of medicine and, uh, that was happening. And so this idea that they would find the biological cause, interestingly, the name for the original neurologists or neuroscientists, they took over some of these mental uh, uh, manhouses, they were called. Um, but the complaint was they weren't interested in living patients. They're only interested in dead patients so they could get hold of their brains, carve them up and find what was wrong. They were convinced they would find there's something wrong in that person's brain. Of course they never did. Uh, and this led to things like ECT, which is the famous um, uh, scene from all through the cuckoo's nest. Uh, um, other treatments included the, um, the removal of what they saw as infected organs in schizophrenic patients. So they would remove, they would say, uh, and the organs included um, uh, uh, all kinds of different major organs, the stomach, the um, testes, different um, uh, organs would be, the wound would be removed because they were seen as being affected, which was uh, affecting the mind. And they claimed in the papers at the time an 80% success rate that the doctors that were pushing this and when the historians have gone back and looked at the actual figures, that was completely made up and very little success. And actually, the mortality rate on the operating table was 30%. So almost a third of patients lost their life through these operations. Uh, putting them into insulin, uh, putting people deliberately into insulin comas in order to try and again shock the madness. They were convinced that if you would be put into a coma, you would wake up again normal. Madman experimentation, and then you've got the kind of, the, you know, kind of wide variety of quite horrendous treatments, you know, 
the, uh, the gruesome lobotomy. Uh, now, the person, Walter Freeman, who invented this transorbital lobotomy, which was seen as an advance on <coughs> traditional lobotomy, it only took a couple of hours, but involved, in, involved inserting an ice pick underneath the ice socket, breaking the ice socket, and then hammering it in, and then cutting across the frontal lobe with the ice pick. Uh, so it became much more efficient. Now, he actually went on tour across America doing thousands of these operations. He, he, he nicknamed the tour Operation Ice Pick, and he won the Nobel Prize for Medicine. So, um, there's, there's a bit I quote in the book when uh, one of the patients, because they didn't, they didn't know how to, if they cut too much, it would leave the person completely like a vegetable. If they didn't cut enough, it was seen as not working. And so they didn't know, how, so what they developed this system where they would talk to the person it's quite a brutal kind of passage I relate because there's a great historian of this mental uh, and he talks about a person and they say what's running through your mind what's going through your mind right now to try and get, engage him he said a knife mm -hmm. so it's literally mm -hmm. cut so it's quite gruesome and this went on to the 50s and 60s until they discovered ECT still goes on today ECT is seen as something that is from the way past it's seen, and actually there's a lot of psychiatrists trying to bring it back as a treatment, as a mainstream treatment. It's, it's still done. Uh, now, just an idea of some of the ideas that we have behind what constitutes mental health and mental illness is the, the, the quote um, from uh, uh, Walter Freeman. He's, he's quoting this because it was originally uh, lobotomy was given to clinically depressed patients, but then gradually they, they um, uh, broadened to schizophrenic patients, even though they saw no reason why it would work. But he said, so this is his justification. Even if a patient is no longer able to paint pictures, write poetry, or compose music, he is, on the other hand, no longer ashamed to fetch and carry, to wait on tables, or make beds, or empty cans. <laughs> So there was also a big uh, program in the interwar years of sterilization of the mentally ill uh, under this uh, idea of eug uh, or eugenics, which probably many of you have heard of. And this was actually, uh, the only thing that stopped that really was the fallout from the Second World War, where again the mentally ill in the um, Holocaust region was sucked up into that. So this, but this was happening in America. Now the idea, the philosophy, I go into more, much more detail in the book. Behind all of this was this idea of something called degeneration. So, because around this time you had this idea of Darwinism, but not just Darwinism on a scientific level, but social Darwinism. And Western cultures were seen as the pinnacle of human evolution. We'd reach through our technology, would reach the pinnacle of the human, and that was the, obviously the justification of a lot of colonization going around teaching the world as, as well as religion, that we'd somehow reach this So the, the philosophers or the people dealing with the mentally ill were saying, well, how come in the pinnacle of this evolution as human beings, we, A, we still have mentally ill people, but B, actually, and this has been shown that in times of great technological change, i.e. The, um, uh, the technological revolutions, 
the mentally ill rates actually rise quite a lot, but not just with the normal suspects, like the poor, the disadvantaged, the excluded from society, but very much with the middle classes is when the, the, these mental illness rates rise. So they come up with this idea that as humans can evolve, they can also degenerate. And it was totally, it was very closely tied with this idea of eugenics. I certain humans have better genes than other humans. This idea, so mentally ill was seen as just a symptom of this degeneration. degeneration. Hence, to sterilise them, will wipe it out in a generation. That was the idea, or a few generations will wipe it out. But of course, the mental, what defines mental illness and what defines actual sanity has always been to do with the culture. The culture decides, the society decides who is sane and who isn't. And this is something that came, as I said, with the anti-psychiatry movement, R.D. Lang in the 1960s. said, how can you call being on the verge of nuclear war or going or destroying millions of your civilians, civilians in a First World War, how can you call that sanity and someone expressing these symptoms madness? It's all relative to the culture. Like I say, when you look at the shamanic cultures, what we deem mentally ill, I seeing things that aren't there, seeing visions, having over-emotional responses to life, can often be seen as a gift. We still have in our culture the fine line between the artist or the creative person and the genius. It's always seen as that fine line. So this idea that the degeneration, now we're still at that phase now because there's this idea that the mentally ill are somehow devolving and therefore they're incurable and there is no gift that can ever come out of mental illness. And this is one of the big reasons that I wrote this book because I've had in my own experiences but also I've treated thousands of people and sometimes their mental breakdowns are the best thing that could ever happen to them. It opens them up much more, makes them more empathic as people. Many people go on there to train in the helping professions, they become more compassionate, become more spiritually minded often. But in mainstream society it's just seen as something to be fixed, cured. Now interestingly the chloroquine, I can never pronounce these drugs, but basically the first antipsychotic they used, and they still use it today on schizophrenic people, was, med was uh, marketed at the time as a medical lobotomy, because lobotomies were so popular. And it was, and like every single, so let's look at the biochemical model, because every single drug that's ever been discovered for mental illness was started out as being used for something else. It was never developed with the idea of mental illness in mind. So I just want you to kind of keep that, because not many people know that as a perspective. What drove this idea that we could find this magic bullet in a pill form was the discovery of antibiotics. Suddenly we had a medical miracle drug in Western culture that was curing thousands of people that would normally have died. So psychiatry got hold of this and thought, well there must be an equivalent drug that, that can cure mental illness in the same way. But the thing is, when they discovered antibiotics, they knew what they were looking for. They knew that the bacteria was causing the sickness. They developed a drug that would be, go against that bacteria. Every single drug that for mental illness has always been 
developed, found to be used, developed for something else, found to be halfway useful, and then then the theory as to why they might work comes. So it's retroactive. Uh, it's a really important point. So the long-term 
And there's actually, there was a meta-analysis, and this was literally a few months ago, um, which analysed all the kind of clinical trials beyond the kind of press release the drug companies send out, and they stated that the difference between placebo and drugs is 0.36%. And the difference between psychotherapies and placebo is 0.34%. So they concluded after more than half a century of research, millions of invested funds, thousands of randomised controlled trials, effect size psychotherapies and pharmacotherapies for mental disorder are limited. Um, when they talk about psychotherapies, that's mainly like the six sessions of counselling or the uh, cognitive behavioural therapy. So it's not necessarily the long-term uh, psychotherapies. Um, so, there we have this DSM document, which some of you might have heard of, which is the, basically, they call it the Psychiatric Bible. Now, it was meant to, when it was developed in the 80s, it was meant to simplify our approach to diagnose, diagnosing mental illness. As some of you might know, the controversies are now that we have more and more diagnoses than ever. And things that were previously seen as part of being human are now being pathologised on a huge range. To the point now, I can go into the doctor after the death of a parent or a sibling or a, a spouse, and after a week, they're allowed to clinically um, diagnose me with depression and give me an antidepressant. A week. And that's in a culture that doesn't really do grief that well in, in, the, in the best of times. Shamanistic culture, there are complex rituals around death. Complex, it goes on for a year or two years. We go to the doctor within a week and you get an antidepressant. There's a great story, and again, I can't go into too much detail, but the book of how they developed this thing called social anxiety disorder. Very minor, not known about uh, disorder in America. And then Beecham's, is it Beecham's? One of those pharmaceutical companies was looking for a market for their um, antidepressants, um, and they wanted to get into the very lucrative anxiety market. So they sent out, started, they got a huge marketing team on and sent out this, this, this idea into the newspapers, the media, that so, this social anxiety was an epidemic and it was affecting, and there's emails accounts of this, and it was affecting millions of people. And so there was this massive campaign that, to raise the awareness, so-called, of social anxiety, which gave them a perfect market for their drugs. So this is an example, they, they paid compensation because of it. Other uh, tactics the drug companies uh, is they invented patient advocacy groups. The marketing teams invented them. They said, so, and then they got these patient advocacy groups, they set them up for normal advertising people, to then campaign for bigger market for the drugs. This is all the kind of underhand uh, stuff. There's a lot more in the book, like I say. So this DSM, this idea that we're pathologizing normal human life, would do pathologizing things that for centuries and generations would kind of has affected people, but not to the point where they need medicating for. Um, and this obvious conflict of interest, we've got 70% of the task force who are, are given the job of making up the DSM-5 uh, have reported financial ties to the pharmaceutical companies. If you're going to medicalize something like mental illness on that level, at least don't have 
huge billions of dollars of gold or billions of pounds is because it can't grow that that well. And that's a bit of an epidemic. If you want to read a lot more about this, a lot more eloquently than us, so, uh, this is a really good book. Really good book, by the way. Um, and then, this is the problem, that not only the drugs have got shaky ground of why they're being prescribed, is actually, as I just read out, the difference between the antidepressant and the placebo has seen, been seen as very, very minimal. This big study in another meta-analysis. The response: they say the drugs do work for a lot of people. Fifty percent, particularly initially. However, the placebo works virtually the same. Although there's a small difference, statistically significant. It's not uh, the difference, not clinically significant. And more than half the clinical trial. Trials sponsored by the pharmaceutical companies failed to find significant drug placebo difference. That's half of the clinical trials. There's no difference between a sugar pill and an antidepressant. So instead of looking deeper into this, the drug companies kind of saw that this was going to be a big problem and kind of moved their attention different elsewhere to cancer, other more lucrative markets, and since there's been no real development of drugs since the late 90s. So, why? Why not look into why placebo will work? And now we're back in the realms of shamanic mind medicine. And now we're back into the realms of magic. Because there is not just the placebo, which is the expected expectation of a positive outcome from medical intervention. And now we're looking at a lot of ideas around this idea of the nocebo. They see it in people who have gone through chemotherapy. So even before the drug has been administered, on the way to the, receiving the chemotherapy, they show all the symptoms, they're vomiting, um, in the weeks leading up, uh, losing weight. That can have a profound physical effect on the uh, body. The idea of this nocebo, so this expectation of a, a negative outcome. But they also, they've done a lot of studies around end of life when people got told they've got six months to live or they've got nine months to live and how, how many people neatly tie up with that exact diagnosis even though the, the diagnosis is a very imperfect art. So they've likened it to the traditional idea of person, which is again a shamanic <coughs> methodology. They're not just healers, they actually cause sickness as well in other they can curse people. And because in the traditional culture they believe the shamans have this huge power, quite often that cursing can result in people losing their life, getting sick. Now, you mentioned the power that doctors have in our society and culture. Not just that, the power, the idea that medicine has. So this physical idea of putting a pill in your mouth and suddenly you get better is so ingrained into us on an unconscious level. It has a huge, huge power. Power that traditionally shamans would, uh, uh, would employ because they realize the power of the mind in people's healing is so important. You have to convince people that they're, they're going to get better as much as do the actual work. So in a traditional culture, when you go to see a shaman or marathon, they look you up and down, shake their head a few times, and then they get the feathers out and they suck into you and they suck out a stone or 
a bit of glass or some ugly looking animal uh, item of blood. Um, and then they show it to you. They say, this was a sickness that was inside of you. And then they get rid of it, throw it into the fire. And when the anthropologists were first going and seeing these cultures, they, they saw that sometimes it was slight of hand, so they called all the shamans fake. But what they didn't realise is they're actually taking sickness out, and it's just invisible. But the human mind needs something to convince itself. It needs to know that some sickness has come out. And so this is the power of placebo. I think Western medicine has just started to get um, uh, a um, grip on. And so this is again where we're in the, the realms that, to sum up, I suppose, this section, um, we've got to stop pathologizing. And that is driven often by profit and motivation as the idea that mentally ill people will be a mentally ill for life, they've got something wrong with them, whether it's a chemical imbalance or it's some developmental, uh, uh, they didn't develop in the right way, psychologically. This idea that the mentally ill have nothing to give, but there's somehow this kind of, uh, this, this where things have gone wrong in the human soul. Humans, we've, we've, we've benefited so much in the modern world, and we've, we've kind of created some amazing things, but we've narrowed the idea of what it means to be human to such a limited idea of get a job, Toe the line, be an assistant, don't see many, too many visions, don't, don't, don't show too much ecstatic emotion, don't praise God too much. And it limits who we are as human beings. And shamanic cultures have this much wider perspective, much more wide perspective, much more inclusive. Um, I think we're going to learn a lot. So that's one aspect. But the other aspect is the what is seemingly going wrong in mental illness might not be something going wrong, but it might be a part, it might be a chapter in someone's life. Yes, it can be incredibly painful and difficult, and I'm not trying to romanticize it in any way, because it is painful often and incredibly difficult. But it has, in a culture that sees that as a part of a shamanic sickness or a spiritual disease, it has a natural endpoint when the person realizes what they're meant to do, what they're meant to be in life who they're meant to be, who they are. Because so many times when people go through mental illness, it's like, I don't know who I am anymore. And that's the best start to any spiritual journey. Don't know who you are. Because the more you know who you are, the more disappointed you're going to be because you don't know who you are really. <laughs> and at the same time, the more you're going to limit that spiritual path because you're going to stop it from even starting. Okay, so let's look at that. No, let's look at psychedelic medicine, which this is a liberty cat mushroom or a, a, a picture of it, uh, drawing of one, which is the magic mushrooms in in our culture in, in Britain that we have. So um, and let's focus. Most uh, clinical trials around um, uh, psychedelic therapy, psilocybin, LSD. MDMA, although you could argue that's not really psychedelic, and different treatments have been used for depression so far. Uh, why do we need that? Because depression is very much a Western disease, if you like. The culture where I go and visit in Mexico, they don't have depression. They have their problems, but they just don't know what depression is, really. 
They're too, they're too busy all the time surviving. They're too, uh, and they, like I say, they eat a lot of parents. So depression is a very particular disease that is to do with civilised society. And so three decades ago, average age for the first onset of depression was 30. Today it's 14. And basically, as this goes on to say, at this pace, over 50% of our younger generation, aged 18 to 29, will succumb to it by middle age. And if you go one generation further, we arrive at the conclusion that we'll all be depressed. depressed. You could argue in England they're not the deepest January, but that would be probably more like 75%. But, um, so this, this is a very modern phenomenon that rates it. Now that could be that there's more, like I say, no one talked about depression when I was young. But that could be there's more reporting of it. But I think there's something else going on here. So like I say, so let's look at two clinical trials that have used psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in what we call magic mushrooms. Um, so a teacher plant, a mushroom. Uh, psilocybin is the one that gives you the visions and how it gives you the experience. They've used this. Firstly, they used it at John Hopkins University in America, a clinically resistant depression trial. Uh, all psilocybin was given to 20 patients, all of whom tried at least two, two treatments previously without success. Now their average time of having depression was 18 years, so th that's the average. So this is, this is people that lived with it for a lot, for a great deal of their lives. Um, and remember, this isn't a drug that is given continuously. This was, I think it, it's either one or two doses. So they give them a big dose, and they have a psychedelic experience, and then they look at the results. This is literally one or two doses, two doses maximum. It's not a drug you have to take for life, it's not a drug you have to take every day. Uh, so all patients show some reduction in their depression scores at one week. Post-treatment, their maximal effects were seen in five weeks. With 40, so nearly half participants showing results, <coughs> and these results remain positive at three and six months. So that's six months after just one dose of psilocybin that people are still having a positive response from that. Now, they looked into this and they thought, well, what is it that, about the drug? Is it the, the chemical involved? <coughs> what is it that actually, or about the experience, that is, is, is aligned with a, a more positive outcome? Because obviously 50% of people didn't have a response. So, uh, were predicted by the quality of the acute psychedelic experience. And I love this, specifically the MEQ, which, mis which means Mystical Experience Questionnaire. So if you were to fill in a questionnaire, how, how is your mystical experience? <laughs> which is, unfortunately, that can only make a measure, which is good, but it just makes it hard. Um, so EG experiences of ego loss, so loss of sense of self. Uh, universal unity, a unity with something much greater than oneself. Time space transcendence, so time and space doesn't exist. You lose all sense of what keeps us rooted in this world, what keeps us defining. Remember, I was talking about the, the repressive mechanism the brain has. Now, one of the reasons, one of the justifications for this uh, trial was they were doing neuroimaging on people. And they realise that when people take psilocybin, it's the same when they go into shamanic trance without <coughs> the drug, but just with the drug. Um, what, we, what they label the default mode network, which 
which is a loose connection of brain areas, which they ascribe to that, the part of our brain that defines our sense of self, or our ego, the eye part of our brain, which is very active in normal everyday life. When people take psilocybin or they go into a shamanic trance, that becomes much less active, and it opens up to much more wider connections from parts of our brain we would normally use. Now, the default mode network is actually much more heightened in depressed people. So, remember that idea, I said they're repressing reality even more because they're having a response to uh, an overstimulated uh, nervous system. This, this is actually being shown by neuroimaging. So, psilocybin, what it simply does, on a more kind of prosaic level, gets rid of the controlling personality, gets rid of the eye, gets rid of the, the person who is defining, I am this, I am that, or what is, is, is striving. Now obviously in our culture, we kind of worship that part of our, our, our brain a bit too much. In most indigenous cultures, all their ceremony and ritual is designed for the person to think of the community first. The sense of individual self is very small. You're not so important as an individual. You're really not. That's why they, they don't care about your visions or anything. They care if you will share your food. Or they care how you relate to other people. They don't care if you have this mystical vision or anything. They just care. So this is what actually has happened. So psilocybin has that effect, which brings this extraordinary healing potential. Now this is the one, through personal reasons, uh, through things that have happened in my life, in my experiences, that really blew my mind. Because this is the psilocybin terminal illness study. So initial studies, so people have been given a terminal illness diagnosis with cancer, and obviously that led to depression, a lot of anxiety. So they, they did this trial, with uh, this initial trial, a randomized double-blind um, study, presented by the psilocybin produces substantial and sustained decreases in depression and anxiety in patients with life-threatening cancer. I think the power of this is because there's no, you can't move on from a terminal diagnosis. You can't do healing around it and, and suddenly uh, um, move on from it in your life. This is with you every single day, which is naturally going to lead to deep feelings of social anxiety and personal anxiety and depression. And they found those who received the medication, 80% were still showing those benefits seven months later. 80%. People. 70% reported the experience from either the single most or the top five meaningful experiences in their lifetime. And then 90% said they improved life satisfaction. A recent follow-up study showed participants were still enduring positive effects up to four and a half year late, years later from one dose, from one experience, which is just extraordinary. And some follow-up therapy. Um, so this for me, because if you're facing death, you're facing the most, one of the most profound experiences that every human being will have. And it's also the causation of so much sickness and illness, this inability to resolve the fact that we're gonna die. It leads to so much mental illness as a society, as a culture, and in individuals. So this profound experience that people had just shows that I think the potential is nice. But what I want to reiterate here is it's not necessarily, because remember, it's, it's people are filling in this mystical experience questionnaire. 
It's the experience. It's not the substance. So psilocybin is profound and amazing at that producing these experiences. But not every, it doesn't suit everyone to have psychedelic medicine. And in, when the shamans that use plants, they use psychedelic medicine, they, the plant is only a small part of it. It's the songs, it's the ritual, it's the ceremony. Because interestingly enough, they did another study recently, and, uh, which was uh, imaginatively titled Tripping on Nothing. And basically they gave, they gave half the people psychedelic medicine and half the people placebo. And guess what? 61% of the participants in the experiment reported some effect after consuming the placebo. So they had a psychedelic trip without the psychedelic medicine. <laughs> Bloody placebo, it won't, it won't leave us alone. That, so it's the ceremony, it's the ritual, it's the intention behind it. Now, there's a big race with Big Pharma now trying to get hold of psychedelic medicine and, and turn it, and now they're trying to develop psychedelic medicine that doesn't give you an experience. They're trying to develop it as a drug because the experience is the controversy. So that, and they're trying to sell that. So again, we've got to remember that it's the ceremony, it's the experience of that ego loss, of oneness, of connection, really connection, is what we're talking about. So, and I just, in terms of connection, you've got the comprising less than 5% of the world's population. Indigenous people protect 80% of global diversity. And that's because woven into their culture, everything is about connection. Everything is about connection to everything that surrounds you. So the humans are just part of that continuum, part of that uh, um, continuum of life. Not more important, not less important. Just the same importance. And, and that's why I say it is the experience. They also report after psychedelic experiences that people become much more uh, ecologically minded or they, or they spend more time in nature or they spend more time gardening. And this is another fact that these medicines, they open people up to nature connection. And this is something I think we're starving, nature connection. And that's something where shamanism can give an, an extraordinary gift uh, to people because the worst thing about mentally ill is my memory, one of the worst things, a lot of bad things, but one of the worst things is that sense of being cut off from everyone. Cut off from myself, cut off from my family who didn't know what could understand what I was going through, cut off from my peers who are already in their 20s, living a proper normal life, going out having fun, getting drunk, taking drugs, whatever. Cut off from society as a whole who didn't even recognise that this was something. Um, so that feeling of being cut off. So that's my feeling that it's not substance, it's not the, the, the clinical, you can do all the clinical trials, but it's simple stuff, and it's that about connection. And that's the gift that shamanism and animistic cultures can offer us. Uh, so going back, I'd just like to kind of go through this, um, my kind of uh, bullet point when I get a bit preachy uh, about learning from the past, and that's stop looking for this magic bullet. Because they're trying to turn the psychedelic medicines, they're trying to turn psilocybin into that magic bullet that they didn't find with the antipsychotics and the antidepressants. It's not a magic bullet. It's how it's treated, it's the intention, the ceremony. 
and all the rich children, because they've now discovered there's two main um, hospitals that have been working now in psychedelic medicine in London. Um, I forgot their names. They're in, in the book. But one of them is much more focused on the psychotherapeutic side of things. And uh, I think it's, um, it's one of Rosalind Watts, uh, Imperial. And so they're much more concerned with the uh, psychotherapeutic, the integration, and the spiritual side of things. And they're having much, much better results than other hospitals are taking this. Because nowadays, every, almost every major uh, psychiatric hospital has a psychedelic unit. It's big business. It's, 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 it's going to be a huge industry. But they're missing the point if they try and turn it into a magic bullet. Because it's the intention of healing that is behind it that is much more important than, than the drug itself. Uh, yeah, because they've abandoned this cultural narrative that humans are the same and can be fixed on a conveyor belt. Give them this drama, you give them this experience that they'll be fixed. Well, we're all unique and we all have unique life stories and, and we will be healed in many different ways. And anyone who works in the healing process or gone through healing journey themselves will know that it is not, it is not a kind of, it's not like a story, a Hollywood arc, if you like. There are many different directions, and finding that magic thing, I mean, as I wrote about my first book, I cured myself of these fits that I was having from the age of 14, and psychotic experiences, by jumping a border from Mexico to Guatemala illegally, uh, and avoiding someone with a machine gun and, and they've been held up by gunpoint and gone on this crazy journey. But that's not really in the textbooks. I wouldn't recommend it, but that's what I needed. Because I, I, went, I needed to go so far out of myself in such a strange, to realise, hold on a minute, I needed to wake up, I need to come back to myself. I need to come back in to who I am. And also, because of the stress of the situation, I had one of those fits. And I've been studying shamanism for a few years then. And I managed to realise that that fit was a gateway. Gateway to another state of consciousness. A gateway. So I used all my shamanic tools and I went through it consciously. Experienced that oneness, that ecstasy that I had at 14 spontaneously. And then I was cured. I had no more fits. So each person is different. Each person and what we... And that's why... I can bang on about shamanism, but I'm just trying to give a perspective. It's not for everyone. And everyone, each person has their own unique journey and a unique way to find something sacred. Because that's what I really believe we're lacking in the modern world. We've, we've disenchanted the world. We've taken the magic out of the world. We've replaced it with rationality and science and, and arguments and politics and all of that stuff. And we need to re-enchant the world, see that it is this magical place. And then when we see that magic is all around us, we can begin to see that magic inside of us and realise that we have this unique gift as, as human beings. And to recognise and discover whatever it is that is sacred for, in each individual person, that that is the huge pathway to heal. For some people, it's, what's sacred is their family, their jobs, whatever it is. For some people's mystical experiences, but whatever it is that is sacred is the most important thing. Uh, and, and taking away this responsibility of the mental illness is primarily on the individual. It's not individuals' genes, it's not individuals' 
brain or biochemistry. It's not the individual's maladaption to the stages of life. A lot of what we call mental illness is created by the culture and the society, and it's decided what is, as I said, what is sane and what is, is, is not sane in the same way. So let's, let's not pretend it's all about the individual. It can never be about the individual. So, uh, a highly interconnected human and a non-human ecosystem. We're going through this period where we're not respecting nature. We're not giving the offerings, we're not giving the praise, we're not giving the ceremony. We carry on. No wonder it's the most sensitive people in the, in the, in, the um, in life that have been affected. So some people could be affected by, they can hear Mother Earth screaming, crying, or angry. And they're, dis they're displaying these symptoms. And then they're blamed, oh, this is something to do with your childhood, or this is something to do with uh, a brain imbalance. Maybe it is something to do with childhood, but also it might be something to do with their ancestors. And also there's something to do with their ancestors in relationship to the Earth. So it's not all about the individual. Uh, and as I said, what we pathologize, other cultures are the highest thing. Heal the family, the ancestors and cultures, see it much more inclusively. Ceremony uh, needs to engage with and change the familial social environment. That's the purpose of shamanic ceremony. Not only just to feed nature, to bring the so social unit together. Indigenous people live very close lives. Everyone knows each other's business. They literally spend 24 hours with each other in big groups. There's a lot of potential for falling out. A lot of potential. And they do fall out. And that's the purpose of ceremony. It brings the community back together with a shared intention. So it's not about individuals. It's bringing the community to cleanse the social body. So one of the rituals the Ruru do is when they go to, before they're allowed into the desert, which is very sacred and seen as a clean place, they have to give a confession. And that's all the people they've slept with that year. Because when you have sex with someone, you, you kind of merge with their energy. So you see it's cleaning that energy. But also, what they realize is this social culture. Because as they say, up in the communities, there's not much to do in between the ceremonies and the farming. They have a lot of sex and a lot of kind of extramarital sex. But they realise that any secrets that stay, and there's a guy in the States who did a, a study around secrets and cancer, secrets that stay have power to them and they poison the community. They poison. So every year they have to go and they have to confess in front of the fire, in front of the, um, the desert, in front of the whole community who they've slept with and other traumas or anything else, anything bad they've done. If they've, they've, robbed someone or anything, uh, they have to confess it in front of everyone. And then you get fined. You get fined for each person who's <laughs> um, the, the remarkable thing is, is they're incredibly playful with it. So it's not a really solemn confession. Uh, they're very playful. They, they, start, they start making fun of how many people you've slept with. It's small, they're like, oh, poquito, if it's a lot of people, oh, yeah. And then they're asking questions, how, how is it? Because um, they, they don't have that shame around the sex. They, they, they see it's a powerful energy, but they, they're very playful with it. So that is cleansing the social body constantly, every year. They get hell when they go back from their wives and husbands, definitely. They go back into that, but it's cleansed. It's not secret. It's not, in, it's not stored in the wood, because we're going to collect the shell. Um, so that's the purpose of ceremony, to bring
bring the, bring the community, the connection, uh, and connecting to local environment. Um, and as I've already said about the sick world would be affecting its humans. And bringing back the meaning and enchantment to the world. Bringing, become, and that's the gift that animism has. They're saying we're, we're, we're suffering from a meaning deficit because our cosmology believes that we're just random particles floating through space. And whether we kind of believe that ourselves, that's the collective cosmology. That's a collective story we've told ourselves. Animistic cultures, they, they, they see meaning everywhere. Meaning is everywhere. Nature's always reflecting back a person, a life, where the culture is, where the people are, where the society is. So these are the things I think we can learn from the past. We don't have to go back to hunter-gatherer society. That's not practical. But there is definitely things we can learn from shamanistic and animistic cultures in order to enliven our culture here, to bring back some magic, bring back the medicine. And I've, my feeling is when, and we are doing that, and when we, and if we're doing that, no, we are def definitely doing that. People, crazy people like us meeting on a Tuesday evening when we could be down the pub or to the football or, or something. There, there is people bringing back meaning and bringing back the heart. Uh, um, when we do that, I think a lot of the symptoms of what we describe mental illness, they will start to fall away because people will realise it's a much more inclusive society and culture is willing to recognise that as maybe not just a curse, a gift that you can add something to life. So I think I'll, I'll get off my soapbox now. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. And we, we can have some questions. That's about quarter to ten. So thank you. Who was in the party? Party. 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 Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I've read it, I quote him a bit in my book, but I'm not, that's, that's not my speciality at all. I mean, he, I mean, he talks about the spiritual crisis, he wrote a book about the spiritual crisis. Um, so he came from the same angle, if you like, but it's not, uh, like I say, I quote him a little bit. In terms of this idea of spiritual crisis, which actually now is much more being recognised, not just, what I'm more focused on is the shamanic sickness. So I know he drew a lot from indigenous cultures, but he drew from a kind of wider, mm-hmm. a lot wider palette than me. I have to think about birth trauma because he's very focused on birth trauma. Yeah, I mean personally, my experiences of 15 years doing one-on-one healing, mm-hmm. a lot of solos happens at birth. But that's what I was thinking about birth. A lot of solos. I've in the womb, because we've lost the modern, in modern birthing methods that helped physically, but spiritually we've lost the that bringing the whole, the, the, the need to bring the whole soul in. So yeah, personally, a lot does happen there. <laughs> can, can you remember your birth? Can I remember it? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. No. What points do you have for this information in this area of study making it into mainstream with the intended impact and not I mean, we're at that point now. I really think the shamanism could go a few ways. It could go into something. Unfortunately, what's happened to yoga, it's become so commercialized and so about something it's not, i.e., just the physical movements, um, that it could go that way. It could be turned into a therapy, which it isn't. It's the ritual basis and ceremonial basis. I mean, that's why I write the book, and that's why I do the talks, to try and. It's not that we can be like an indigenous culture, but we can at least be, and it's good it goes into the mainstream, because I think we need to change mainstream culture, otherwise we'll just be a subculture. But to carry that authenticity is is going to be tough. You need a few loud voices, I think, and stop them. And convincing a lot of recommended people to accept that there's something other than yeah, I mean, what I found when I was when I because I practiced fifteen years doing shamanic healing full time, I thought when I started with Brighton, I thought it would be all the hippies from Brighton coming for healing. But I was surprised very early, very like conventional people started coming, and and then through word of mouth, and when, when you start talking about this stuff, solos, for example, or you, people get it on a very intuitive, instinctive level. I think this idea of enchanting the world. I think. It's not that far removed. You just, I mean, that's and that's why I wrote that book, which is called these scientific studies, and that is is to, to appeal more to that mindset. That's not really my kind of. I can do it, but it's not really what I'm interested in. All the scientific studies and stuff. So it's a challenge, definitely. I think the indigenous people coming over can help yeah. a lot, keep us on track with that. And there is a kind of reverse. Uh, missionary happened now, where all the indigenous, where we went over to their lands, it, like generations ago, now they're all coming over here, with their, getting, sharing their ceremonies, and I think there's a beautiful poetry to that. Yeah. Is there any breath work within shamanic 
because there's an awful lot of self-love work going on the last five years. Everybody's beginning to become aware of that self-love. And the basis of that is an awful lot of breath work. Yeah, I mean, that's more Eastern traditions, more the mystical traditions. I know Stanislav Groff developed the holotropic, something called the holotropic breath work, but that was seen to get you into an altered state specifically. Um, yeah, I mean, shamans are very pragmatic. They will use what's around them. So, hence you have a lot of plant cultures in South America and Central America, because there's a lot more psychoactive plants there. Uh, the drum comes from Siberia and uh, Mongolia. We wouldn't have traditionally had the drum in the UK. The reason for that being too, too damp as a climate, and the, the drums, you need a cold and, and, and dry climate. So, so shamans will use what's, uh, and, the, and because shamanism is this big umbrella term for thousands of different cultures, there might be certain cultures that are very focused on breath. I haven't specifically, I don't know of any specific traditional cultures that are. Um, any, but they use more, it's more percussive in, in instruments, dancing, movement, uh, uh, singing, uh, plants, that's the traditional way of going into trance. Um, I think, going back to this idea of placebo, when you go to an indigenous, indigenous people, when they go to the ship, get sick, they, they realise there's something in them, either when they've lost a part of their soul or there's an intrusion, a spiritual intrusion. They go to this shaman Marikami, he, she waves their feathers and takes it out, shows it to them, they get better. But in the West, we've got a lot of mind stuff on top of that, a lot of cultural conditioning, a lot of... So in an animistic culture, they believe the shaman will get them better, and therefore, and this is something I noticed after 15 years <coughs> of doing the work, I used to be booked up for a year, six months in advance, I got a bit of a name if you like, and, um, and it was all referrals, and I got better at what I did, hopefully, that's because I learned a bit along the way, but also I noticed that people were coming in with much bigger expectation of being healed, and that was going half the way to helping them. So I would work a lot with um, changing the story, taking the emotional charge out of the story uh, and changing, because for me most in energetic intrusions are a heavy emotion attached to some kind of uh, thought form or belief system and, and separating the two through talking and then through actually literally going in and separating the two. The other thing indigenous people will never understand, most of their cause of sickness Cursing, someone else is cursing, mostly, or they've been cursed by the spirits in nature. Um, in our culture, they, what they don't understand and what we have a problem with is self cursing. So we're much more likely to curse ourselves. And they're like, why would you do that? It's crazy. <laughs> but we've had generations of ancestral inheritances, we've had whole cultural and systematic systems that have caused people to flagellate themselves, cut off part of them who they are, and, and really and that, an unresolved trauma. Again, the ceremony is there not only to, like I say, connect with nature, pay the spiritual debt, but it's there to cleanse 
So any personal traumas is, uh, is cleansed. But when we haven't been doing that for generations, so another big area that I would work with would be the person's ancestors. Because personally, I think a lot of what people believe is personal and may have a reflection in their personal stories is also ancestral. People get so attached to this, this, these ideas as, and, 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 and the arguments. And obviously, there's a kind of social media companies uh, do well out of that. And, and there is a kind of definitely a kind of um, the idea of nuance and subtlety has gone out the window. So, uh, this, this sickness that is affecting us as a culture, I think, yeah, that's why we need to get into nature. Because when you go into nature, you do these ceremonies, you realise that oh, stuff doesn't really matter. And we're crawling out of the sweat out at four in the morning and then <laughs> to cinders. <laughs> you kind of put things in perspective. It's like when you go fasting in the desert, dry fasting, you walk for two days, climbing mountains, thinking I'm never going to make this. I mean, it's, the sun is beating down on me. I haven't eaten, I haven't drunk, I've been up for 48 hours. How am I going to get to the top of this sacred mountain? And then when you have that water, that, you praise the hell out of it. Mm. That is, you praise that so much. And you realise that's why indigenous people, that's why they celebrate water. Water is life. But you know that from the lack. So I think we, because we haven't woven into our culture all these rituals and that we've, we, we, we distract ourselves with, with craziness. We're actually fire, water, being in nature, connecting to something inside oneself and outside oneself. These are the important things in life. Is that for one more? One last question. Yeah. You got that. Strike the edge of ecology.